0: Good morning, church. One, two, I, is this on? Happy Father's Day. It's good to be with you on Father's Day. Um, you know, when my kids were little, uh, as they were growing up, one of my great privileges as a father was to instruct them, was to teach them, use my words, and, and grow them. And I I took every opportunity to do that, and one of my, not one of my, my favorite thing to do with my kids was tell them how precious they were to me. I like to just grab them up in my arms, and when I come home from work, and we twirl around, and I tell them how much I love them, how much they mean to me, and and what a joy it is for them to be in my life. But that wasn't my only communication with them. I remember when my daughter was maybe, my oldest daughter, Laura, she was maybe three years old, and... And uh we saw somebody uh smoking, and so uh if you smoke, don't don't take this wrong. But I, I was teaching my kids, right? So we see somebody smoking, and so I, I brought my daughter over and I said, uh I said, Hey, do you see what they're doing? And she goes, Yeah, I said, That's called smoking, it's a cancer stick. And she's like, Well, what does that mean? I said, Well, when they do that, they grow mushrooms in their lungs. I mean, there's a little kid, right? And she goes, Mushrooms? And I said, Yeah, and she said, That's terrible. I said, yeah. She said, does it hurt them? I said, yeah. They can't breathe. They cough blood up. Eventually, it'll kill them. Well, we should tell them. And I said, well, they know. Well, why are they doing it? I said, they think something else will kill them first. That's terrible. I said, yeah, it's terrible. You know why I have this conversation? I don't like that kind of conversation. We were talking about a friend of ours, a a dear friend. But Because I love my daughter, because I love my children, I don't just tell them that I love them. I also tell them about stuff that will hurt them. I also tell them about stuff that they need to avoid and stay away from. I tell them about problems and difficulties in life, and I teach them about the whole gambit. And if all I do as a father is affirm that I love them, I've left them vulnerable. I've left them without the strength that they need, without the information that they need and the knowledge that they need. And that's on me if I do that. This week's message is a lot like mushrooms in your lungs. There's nothing fun about it. I thought about skipping this chapter for a hot second. And then I apologized to God and said, you wrote this, it's precious, and I, I I would never do that. Honestly, I don't like it. I don't like teaching about it. I don't like reading it. I don't like thinking about it. It's awful. It's depraved. It's depraved. It's about depravity, and it uh, it hurts me. I just I just don't I don't like this. I even this morning as I was going through my notes the last time and looking at everything, I just uh, just sick to my stomach thinking about it. So why do we do it? Why do we read it? Why do we consider it? Samuel answered. This is the end of chapter 19 of Judges. He says, consider it. Take advice and speak your minds. He said, listen to me, son, and take this to heart. That's what Samuel said when he wrote this. He said, let this be a warning and let it change you. Think about it. Talk about it. And be adjusted by it. That was Samuel's reason. I think when he got done writing this chapter, he threw the pen away. I would have. He he was he was disgusted by it as I am, and it was a horrible piece of history in Israel, but a necessary piece to remember and understand, lest we repeat it. So we are going to go through chapter nineteen and look at the depravity in Israel at this time. Let's pray, Father. Thank you for your grace and your goodness and your mercy, and thank you that you talk to us, deal with us from the side of grace, from the side of unmerited favor. But Father, as we read the Word of God, let us be changed by its reading, by our understanding of it, and draw closer to you. Father, thank you for the warnings in the Word of God, and adjust us by them. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Okay, Judges chapter 19, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite sojourning on the side of Mount Ephraim who took to him a concubine out of Bethlehem Judah. So we're going to deal with these two people mostly, this Levite and his concubine, and they are from up here, or he is from up here in the middle of Ephraim, in the mountain country of Ephraim, that highland area. And he is going to sojourn down here to Bethlehem, in the city, or in the nation, or the tribe of Judah, and pick up a concubine. Now, a concubine is very similar to a wife as far as 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 sexuality goes. Which, by the way, this I cannot teach this and and be um, gentle with conversation. So, if you have kids that you don't want to hear the depravity of Israel, um, send them to Sunday school or something. But uh, I want my kids to hear and understand the entire counsel of God, but anyway, here we are, and, and, and a concubine is very similar to a wife, except that she doesn't have the social standing. So they have the same uh, vows as well, I mean as a polygamist. He has the same vows as a guy with multiple wives, that, he is, that he's true to, to his wives and, and doesn't go outside of marriage, but there isn't a social contract with her. so she's lower than a wife. In, in this story, his concubine is a servant that he's taking on as a mistress for his own gratification, and, and that, I think, is part of the of the lesson about the problem that Israel had at this time. So here, that's the zoomed-out map. Here's the close end. The top up there is Ephraim. The lower part's Judah, and this is where he's coming from in the hill country. He's coming down here to Jerusalem, and our story is going to take place in this area in Benjamin, so there's a couple of towns there that we're going to be mentioning, but that circle is basically where our story is this week. Now, when does this take place? Judges chapter 20, verse 28 is a continuation of this story, and it says, "In Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying." So this this is a time that the, the, those days, being the ones that we're in right now, is a time that Phineas who is the son of Eliezer and a grandson of Aaron, is there. Now, where is that? Joshua 24, 33. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him in that hill pertaining unto Phinehas, his son, which was given him in Mount Ephraim. So the guy that is going to lead the charge against the Benjamins in the next chapter is Aaron's grandson. So the people that we're dealing with here, when Samuel is telling us about the depravity of Israel, we're dealing with people that were that were concurrent with Moses are the, the people that, that came into the promised land. This is our first generation dwellers of the promised land. So we are before Judges chapter 1 in time frame. We're at about 350 B.C., and at the end of Judges, when we pick up Saul, we're at about 1,043 or so B.C. So this is a good 300, 350 years prior to, the, uh, when Saul come, becomes king way back at the beginning. Okay, the concubine, Judges two nineteen 19, or 19, verse 2. And his concubine played the whore against him and went away from him unto her father's house to Bethlehem, Judah, and was there four whole months. So as a concubine and as a servant, she has a responsibility to him, a vow to him, and she's broken that. She probably had a boyfriend or something back home and so she left Ephraim, where she was from, and she's traveled back to uh, where her dad is from for four months, and she's shacked up with some guy down there against her vows at that time. So here is a, a caveat, and I'm going to chase a rabbit trail that really doesn't track with the rest of the tra- uh, chapter, but I had to have something positive to study this week, or I would have chewed my fingers off. Judges chapter 13, verse 9. And her husband arose and went after her to speak friendly unto her, and to bring her again, having his servant with him and a couple of asses. And she brought him to her father's house. And when the father of the damsel saw him, he rejoiced to meet him. Now, there's a couple of interesting things here, but let's go back to verse, uh, back at the top of verse 3. And it says, So this is after four months that she's been gone, he's decided to go win her back. He travels to where she's at, and it says he spake friendly unto her. Now, the word here, the the phrase, the Hebrew phrase, is he spoke to her heart. He communicated to her heart. He went to have a heart-to-heart with his wife, with with his concubine. And I think this is something that, as husbands, it's easy for us to miss that our wives need. That's our responsibility to our wife. To go and have this conversation requires for him to travel, to move from his position to her position. He's coming to her. It also requires for him to be vulnerable before her, to come and say, wife, I need you. I need, I need you in my life. I need your input. Listen, husbands, your wife needs to know that you need her. That's an necessary part. That's something that's very important that you need to do a ministry, a, a crucial ministry to your wife, is for her to know that without her, you're devastated, you're lost, you are in need of her. And then she can minister to those needs, and there's fulfillment, God tells us in that. So it's a place of vulnerability, husbands, when we go to our wife and we say, and if it's not, then you're not speaking from your heart to her heart. If you're not vulnerable and putting yourself in a position that she can hurt you, that she can revile you, then you aren't speaking to her heart yet. You need to go to where she's at, meet her where she's at, and speak friendly, speak to her heart. Look at Ruth. This is the kinsman redeemer, the story that points us to Christ, Ruth 2.13. It says, and she said, let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for thou hast comforted me. And for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thy handmaid, though I be not like unto one of thy handmaidens. So here is this, this woman, a foreign woman, and she's come into the promised land. And this is actually a little after our story from today. She comes to the promised land. She, she's there with Boaz, and she says to him, Sir, you have spoken to my heart, and I didn't deserve that. I wasn't in a place to receive that, that, that it was necessary for you to do that. Husbands, if you wait until it's necessary, until your wife does something that is so wonderful and precious that you have to go, thank you. What a blessing. If you wait till then, you're waited too long. When she hasn't yet, you seek her out and speak friendly, speak to her heart and comfort her. And that is a, a major ministry that you have to your wife. Here is God dealing with his people. And he's talking about them walking away from him. Look at Hosea chapter 2, verse 13. And this is the voice of God. He says, and I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, wherein she burned incense, uh, uh, incense to them and decked herself with earrings and her jewels. And she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her under the wilderness and speak comfortably to her. God says, the nation has forgotten me, they've walked away from me, they've ignored me, they're chasing other gods, and he says, I'm going to pursue them, bring them to a place that's just the two of us, and then speak comfortably to her heart. I'm going to tell her what she means to me and woo her, allure her back to me. Husbands, your responsibility before God, the office that God has given you, is to pursue your wife. Pursue her, chase her down, and tell her, you are precious to me. You're important to me, and I need you. And by your words, comfort her and allure her and draw her to yourself. Your position, husband, is the one with the responsibility. We like to talk that the Scripture says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. That is absolutely true and will not take away from the Word of God. But husbands, before that ever happens... Whether that happens or not, you pursue her and you tell her about how much you need and love her. Genesis 50, verse 21. Now therefore, fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly to them. This is Joseph talking to his brothers. But it's a it's a type of, of coming back to the promised land and how Christ deals with us. And he assured his brothers and he said, Listen, I want you to know something. I will nourish you. I will take care of you and your children, and I will comfort, or he comforted them, and he spoke to their hearts. He he spoke kindly to them. Husbands, your wife needs to know you're going to provide for her, take care of her, protect her, be her fence and her wall, be her her tower that is, is, is over her, her banner that's love over her, and that you are going to recognize your need and how precious she is. Husbands, if you get this ministry right, If you get it right, then everything else follows afterwards, and you are blessed. And I'm going to show you, that's not my words. That's God's words. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. There's a couple of fascinating things. He says, first of all, husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God commended his love towards us, right? That's when we were still in sin. He pursued. And what did he do? He sanctified or called them to himself and said, you're mine. You're mine. You don't belong there. You belong to me. You're mine. That's not a possessive. That's an endearing belonging. And then cleanse it. Wash it from the dirtiness and the filthiness and recognize that I'm not just loving the bar- bride for what she is now, but for what I know she can be if I pour myself out for her. Husbands, that's your ministry. That's your major ministry. Now, I see the wives mentally taking notes. I can see that in your eyes right now, right? Next time he says that to me, boom, I'm qu- quoting Pastor Nathan. Go going to tell him, you know what he said? This is not to you, wives. This isn't to you. This is to your husbands. And, and when, when, Paul wrote, or, or when Paul wrote this, he said it that way. He said, husbands, now you can plug your ears, wives. And then he says, wives, you plug your ears, husbands. He's talking to the wife. The ministry that your husband has to you is not one that you command. And the ministry that your wife has to you is not one that you command. It's something that she offers to God and he offers to God. If you're using this in an argument, then you're not obedient to this. The same with wives submit to your husband. If you're using that in an argument, then you're not obedient. Doesn't mean you don't teach it to your to your family. It means that you're you're inappropriate if you're using it. 528. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. See? Said is in the word. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord, the church. What perfect terminology. That, that a husband is to nourish, to give his wife the nourishment that she needs, the, the things that she needs, and these are words that you're giving to your wife and cherishing her, and she needs to know that by your words. Second Corinthians, look at what the Father's done for us. Second Corinthians three. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, And the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Do you see the terminology, how it passes from what we do for our wives to what God does for us? And then he says, I want you to mimic me. I I want you to be what I've been to you. And what is that? I want you to comfort your wife the way I'm comforting you. And when you do that well, she can turn around and comfort others and minister to them. One of those is going to be you. If you love your wife, you've loved yourself. That's why the scripture says that. She can't minister to you the way she needs to, husband, until you minister to her first. The job of the marriage and the positions that God has given us starts with the husband. You're not just the boss. Maybe I shouldn't use that word. You're not the boss. You are the one with the responsibility, husband. It rides on you first. First Peter three seven. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Peter says, I want you to understand that the wife. Is the one that needs to receive first. She's the weaker vessel. I didn't say that. God did. I know that angers women's lib. That's not my fault. God's the one that wrote it down. He said the wife is the weaker vessel. That's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's something that allows you to cherish and grow her. You know, people like growing orchids. You know why? Because they're terrible flowers and die all the time. Like, like we're, we're trying to spray and, and kill the little yellow flowers in our yards, right? Because maybe not here, but in Tennessee, right? You've got to kill daisies all the time. They just, not daisies, what do you call those? Dandelions. you got to kill dandelions all the time. They grow and they, they choke everything out. Why does no one like dandelions? Because they don't need your help. They need you to kill them. So they, wives are orchids. Wives are gentle. Wives are something that's weaker than you, husband, and they need you to minister to them and if you're requiring that your wife minister to you first so that you can do that in turn you're backwards you pour out for your wife so that she can minister the way that she should and guess what orchids are a lot prettier than dandelions orchids are are a lot nicer they're they're pleasant to be around husbands if you treat your wife like a dandelion don't be upset when she acts like a weed if you want to if you want your wife to be what she should be listen this is the scripture's teaching he said, husbands, love your wives because Christ has love you first. And then if you'll do that, that you're ministering to yourself. That's what the Bible says. You can eat my dandelions if they're out in the yard. I don't want to eat dandelions. Okay, the concubine's dad. So back into Judges. That was my, my rabbit trail that I enjoyed this week. Now back to the work. Judges 19.3, and her husband arose and went after her to speak friendly unto her and to bring her again, having a servant with him and a couple of asses. And she brought him unto her father's house when the father of the damsel saw him, and he rejoiced to meet him. Now there's some, there's some subtext going on here. So he travels down. She's been gone four months. She's not at her father's house. She's probably shacked up. He goes to her, and when he renews his relationship with her, she goes back to her father's house And her father is stoked. Her dad didn't like whatever she was doing, didn't like where she was, didn't think it was good for her. He thought the other guy was. And uh, he was stoked when the guy came back and and brought his wife. Also, he has a servant and some some transportation. That means he was well off. So it's a well-off guy with a a well-off family, and his father-in-law really likes him. Judges 19.4. And his father-in-law, the damsel's father, retained him and he abode with him three days. So they did eat and drink and lodge there. And came to pass on the fourth day when they arose early in the morning that he rose up to depart. And the damsel's father said unto his son-in-law, comfort thy heart with a morsel of bread and afterward go your way. So he, he hangs out with his father-in-law three days. I would get bored. But he hangs out there and, and just eats and drinks and just sits in the house. And, and, and they don't do anything. And he's idle there for three days. Finally, he says, you know what, I'm going to go. And his father-in-law says, no, 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 come here and have some, have some bread. And then after you eat, go your way, right? So then they sat down and did eat and drink, both of them together. For the damsel's father had said unto the man, be content, I pray thee, and tarry all night, and let thine heart be merry. And when the man rose up to depart, his father-in-law urged him, therefore he lodged there again. So he gets ready to leave, and the father-in-law says, no, 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 stay, just eat breakfast with me. Okay, how about brunch? Second breakfast. We know about second breakfast. Eat that. And so then they go a little bit further and a little bit further. And finally, oh, it's late. Let's not do anything today. Just stay the night. Does it again? Does it again? And so here they are, end of the fourth day, and they're still there. And he rose up early in the morning on the fifth day. So he's not just sleeping in. He's getting ready, prepping to go. On the fifth day to depart, and the damsel's father said, Comfort thy heart, I pray thee. And they tarried until afternoon, and they did eat. Both of them. Now I am a imaginative guy, and when I study the Bible, I, I go I study all sorts of ways. I looked at connecting verses and all that, but I also walk through the story of my mind. When I'm laying in bed, when I'm driving, when I'm walking around, when I'm sitting in my office, I'll stare at the wall for an hour and just I'll just walk through the story of my mind. I lose myself in time. So here I am, and in my mind, this guy's kind of fat, right? The father in law. He's kind of a big fat guy. And and uh, got kind of a, a long beard, and he sits in a rocking chair on the front porch. That's because I'm from the south, and that's like every grandpa ever. And so he sits there, and he's like, he, 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 the son, son-in-law gets ready to leave, and he's like, no, 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 let's have dinner together, let's breakfast together, let's have lunch together. And it just goes back and forth for a couple of days. Now, when we see the calamity at this in this verse, that calamity starts here. I want you to recognize that the little things that we are obedient in the word of God, the little pieces matter, and they can matter a great, great deal. They can be very vital. If this man had been careful, none of the calamity would have taken place. It was a small decision. It was sitting there and eating. Look what Proverbs 23 says, 23:19. 23, Hear thou, my son, and be wise, and guide thine heart in the way. Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh, for drunkards and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Now, that was written 120 years or so after this happened. No, that was written four, or 500 years after this happened. But um, you you got to realize that that when, uh, when we disobey the Scripture's proverbs, in other words, the, th- the things that are not thou shalt not, But, hey, this is better than that. And when we say, you know what, we're going to go our own way and do it, it spreads a net for the feet. They that will be rich, flattery, things like that, that you go, where's the line? I don't know for sure. If you're not careful, it can create long-term problems of biblical proportions. Judges 19.9, and when the man rose up to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the damsel's father, said unto him, behold, behold. Now the day dawneth toward evening. I pray you, tarry all night. Behold, the day groweth to an end. Lodge here that thine heart may be merry. And tomorrow get you early on your way, that thou mayest go home. So the father-in-law says again the same thing he said the day before and the day before that. Oh, it's already late. You know, let's open another bottle. Let's just break a little more bread and just sit here and talk for a little while on the porch in my rocking chair. And the son-in-law goes, look. I've, I've I've played this, okay? I'm bored to tears. It's time to go home. I should have left this morning. I'm leaving right now. So we know that this is about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, something like that. 3 or 4 o'clock, he's getting ready to leave. But the man would not tarry that night. But he arose up and departed and came over against Jebus, which is Jerusalem. And there were with him two asses saddled. His concubine was also with him. So He rises up at, say, four in the afternoon, and he travels from down here in Jerusalem up here to, I mean, down here in Bethlehem up here to Jerusalem. And he says, And when they were by Jebus, the day was far spent, and the servant said unto his master, Come, I pray thee, and let us turn into this city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. So they're passing Jerusalem, and at this point, this is prior to the book of Judges, Jerusalem had not yet been conquered by Judah. It's still in the hands of the Jebusites. Uh, Joshua fifteen sixty three we see that for uh, as for the Jebusites the inhabitants of Jerusalem the children of Judah could not drive them out but the Je- Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem until this day again that dates our story as prior to the start of Judges Judges one eight this is Othniel we see the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and had taken it and smitten it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire so by the time we get to Judges chapter one. Judah is in possession of Jerusalem. During this story, they're not yet. So they're passing Jerusalem, and the servant says, hey, it's now getting late, and let's go in there. And his master said unto him, we will not turn aside hither unto the city of a stranger that is not of the children of Israel. We will pass over to Gibeah. And he, ans- and he said unto his servant, come and let us draw near to one of these places to lodge all night in Gibeah or in Ramah. So... The servant, they're passing Jerusalem, and now if they left at four o'clock, it's about six in the evening, something like that. And they started down here in Bethlehem, and it's about two-hour walk or so up here to Jerusalem. So they get up there to Jerusalem, and it's getting around six, maybe six fifteen, six thirty. The sun's really low on the horizon. We read from the Romans that, I mean, not the Romans. I'm sorry, the Egyptians and people that had come through that territory that there were lions, there were highwaymen and bandits, that it was a difficult and and, uh, arduous journey. We actually have a journal from a businessman that lost everything trying to travel through this area about this time. It's not a place you want to sleep outside the city walls. You don't just throw a tent up and sleep. You're going to be robbed or you're going to be murdered by animals. So the servant says, hey, let's turn in right here and sleep. And the master said, No, we're gonna at least go as far as Gibeah, that's about another hour and a half. So we're gonna move from maybe six, six fifteen all the way up to seven thirty, maybe something the sun's setting at this time, or it's set, it's it's pretty dark. Judges 19, 14, and when they had passed and went their way, and the sun went down upon them when they were by Gibeah, which belongeth to Benjamin. So as they're walking north, the sun is the sun is setting over there on their left, and And they are uh, uh, watching it drop below the mountain range over the Mediterranean. And they're coming up to the walls of the city. It's in the twilight hours, just about to get dark. And they walk into this city in Benjamin. And they turned aside thither to go in and lodge in Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down in a street of the city, for there was no man that took them into his house to lodging. So here, Benjamin has just conquered the territory, right? This is in the first generation. The cities are just getting set up good. It's probably dirt roads through there. People have different houses. And and here, this man and his servant have come up, and, and there's nobody that offered them a place to stay. There's no establishments like inns or hotels. So they sit down somewhere inside the wall of the city, off one of the main thoroughfares, somewhere off to the side, they're feeding the animals and they're getting ready to camp for that night in the city. Now, to understand the story, we need to understand Stranger Law in the in the Old Testament. What is the law that has to do with strangers? And uh, here it is: Exodus chapter twelve, verse forty-nine is the first commandment with it. It says, "One law shall be to him that is homeborn and to the stranger." That sojourneth among you. So the first thing of Jewish law, and this was unique in in this land, and it is unique uh, today in many ways. If you travel to foreign countries, a lot of times they have one law if you're an American, another law if you're if you're from that country. The prices are different. The, uh, the uh, penalties for things are different, and, and the laws can be adjusted. The reason that America is what we are is because we're based on Judeo-Christian values. That's what this is. This is the foundation of our republic, of our Judeo-Christian value. It says that one law, that that you don't have two sets of laws for somebody that's a stranger and somebody that's from there. Uh, uh, Exodus 23, verse 9. Also thou shalt not oppress a stranger, for ye know the heart of a stranger, seeing you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So God has told Israel... When, you come, when a stranger comes into your land or your territory, you will not oppress them. You don't, you don't stop them from functioning, from doing things, and you allow them to function as one of your society when they're in your land, and, and that's a law from God. Leviticus 19.33, And if a stranger sojourn with thee in your land, ye shall not vex him. But, that, but the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you. And ye shall love him as thyself, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So God signed this law. He said when somebody comes in, you treat them the same way that you want to be treated, and you don't vex them. That's a fantastic word that we've mostly lost. We're going to take it back right now. Vexing is what bees do if you kick a bee's nest, right? They vex you. He said don't vex the strangers that are in the land but you treat them and entreat with them as somebody that's important and love them as yourself. You know, when we get to the New Testament, we think, ah, the Old Testament's gone. You know, it's based, the New Testament is based on God's nature. The Old Testament's based on God's nature. There hasn't been a big change. The, The Bible says, beloved, love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love, and he says, Thou shalt love him as thyself, and look at Deuteronomy. He doth execute, this is about God, this is talking about God, doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and the widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. So their last law is God loves the stranger because God's providing for them. He's given him food and raiment and life, and he hasn't killed them yet even though they've sinned against him and, and acted in a way that would require God's judgment. God loves those people, so you love them. You see the continuity between. Okay, the man of Ephraim, 1916. And behold, there came an old man from his work out, uh, out of the field at evening, and when, which was also of Mount Ephraim. And he sojourned in Gibeah. But the men of the place were Benjamin, ben- Benjamites, So when this guy uh, comes back from work, it's dark 30, right? He's coming back. He worked until dark. He couldn't see in the field. He walks back home. He's walking into the city, and he is an Ephraimite, which is the same as this Levite and and his concubine, right? They're from Ephraim. And this Ephraimite has a connection and says, what are you doing here? We just read the laws that said that was inappropriate or sinful. The people that were in that city should have treated this other Ephraimite the, the Levite that was from Ephraim, they should have treated him like a precious neighbor, not like a foreigner. But finally this Ephraimite gets there, and he comes in, and he walks up to talk to the guy. 1917. And when he had lifted up his eyes, he saw a wayfaring man in the street of the city, and the old man said, Whither goest thou, and whence comest thou? So he's walking in back home. It's dark 30, and, and he's just tired, ready to go home and go to bed for the night. And he looks over, and there's a guy... With his servant and, and his concubine laid out in the side of the city, he's obviously a well-to-do fella, and um, he's got his tack and equipment spread all around. And and the and the old man walking in from the field goes, "What are you doing? And who are you? And that's not safe. Like wh- what's going on right now? Like you're camping in the ghetto. You, you you can't do that. That's a bad idea." Verse eighteen, and he said unto him, "We are passing from Bethlehem, Judah, uh, toward the side of Mount Ephraim." From thence am I. And I went to Benjamin Judah, but now I am going to the house of the Lord. And there is no man that receiveth me to house. So this guy's a Levite. He's a priest in the temple for God. And he, the stranger, says, what are you doing? He says, I went down to get my concubine. I'm headed back home and back to the temple. And he said, when I came to town, nobody received me. This man knew the law well and knew that they were in error of the law, but the ta- the city didn't care, the country didn't care, the people didn't care, and really the Levite didn't care, I don't think. The law of God was not precious to them, and thus ensuing chaos. Uh, Judges 19.19. 19. Yet there is both straw and provender for our asses, and there is bread and, and wine also for me, and for thy handmaid, and for the young man which is with thy servant, and there is no want of anything. So he said, look, We've got hay for the donkeys. We've got straw for them to sleep on. We we are fine to sleep out here. We've got plenty of food, something to drink. We're we're taking care of ourselves. This is a by a cultural byplay. This is when you give somebody your neighbor a ride and, and you go, Well, here, let me pay you. And your neighbor goes, No, 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 don't pay me. No, no, I want to pay. I'm gonna give you hundred no, dollars. No way. No, maybe twenty. Okay, here's twenty. And you do this little this little cultural back and forth thing and 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 this little dance. So that's what they're doing. Judges 19:20 and the old man said peace be with thee howsoever let all thy wants lie upon me only lodge not in the street so he brought him unto his house and gave provender to the asses and they washed their feet and did eat and drink now in those days you don't have showers but when you come in from the outside and you've been walking you're wearing sandals you have you know dirt dung scratches your feet are dirty, so just like we saw Jesus wash the feet of the disciples, when you come in, the the hospitable thing to do is to have your your feet washed from your knees down at least, and that way you're not you're not bringing that mess into the house, and you're you're clean as you come in. And so he came in, and that was a a, um, a physical example of the hospitality that he's extended. That now they are under his protection, which was very. Uh, important in the Mediterranean society. Uh, Judges 19.22, and as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, certain sons of Belial, beset the house round about and beat at the door and spake to the master of the house, the old man saying, bring forth the man that came into thy house that we may know him. So they, they get home, and um, they, they sit down together. They're having a meal. They're kind of maybe laughing and talking. They've been there for maybe 30 minutes, half hour. It's time for the farmer to go to bed. It's, I mean, he's been working till dark, and then they, they feed the animals. The men of the city gather all around the house and start banging on the doors, banging on the windows, banging on the back doors. But this is different than Sodom and Gomorrah. In Sodom and Gomorrah, the men, young and old, gathered around the house. So you had... You had kids that were 12, that were 10, gathered around wanting to rape the angels. And you had old grandpas gathered around wanting to rape the angels when you're back in Sodom and Gomorrah. Here we have certain sons of Belial. So this is not the entirety of the city. This isn't all the men. This is just a group of the men. Last week, I think it was last week, we had a uh, a gay pride parade down here in Kapa'a. And it it dirties up the entirety of the island, it dirties up the entirety of the of the state and of the nation when we do things like that, and the judgment of God as it falls, will fall on everyone, not just the certain sons of Belial and So here are these certain sons they gather around the house and they say, "Bring the man out so that we may and it's a group of them and they want to to gang rape him. Here we are, homosexuality, Hosea chapter nine verse nine talks about this particular. Uh, instance it says they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the day of Gibeah therefore he will remember their iniquity he will visit their sins talking about God and God says that they have deeply corrupted themselves you know we treat homosexuality as though it is a as though it is a fad a passing phase a different choice uh, a little different than me God does not treat it that way he says it's deeply corrupted. It's not a little bit corrupted. It's not like cheating on your on your taxes or or doing something you know a little bit wrong or are lying to somebody. It is deeply vile. It's something that's awful that God looks at and says, "I'm not going to forget it. I'm going to judge you for that." That that's a statement from God. Romans one twenty six. For this cause, gave God gave them up to vile affections. You know, the people of of. America today say you need to love who you want to love that it's love right how can you be against love I have a different word for that God has a different word for that he calls it a vile affection that's vile you, you, you say you love the other man God says that's vile the feeling that you have and you say you can't help how you can feel God says you can let God be true and every man a liar he says it's a vile affection For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Who made nature? God made nature. God is the creator of all things. And God says that this thing that's being done is against what he's created and done. God is against it. And his nature is against it. And it's vile. Romans 1.27. And likewise the men also leaving the natural use of the women. Burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. I don't know what that is. The Scripture tells us in the New Testament that God looks at the homosexual and says, That's vile. That is awful. It's evil. And He says that they're burning in lust towards one another. This is not love. This is not a relationship. This is a vile, evil thing. And He says that God will work in them a recompense. That means he gives them a reward for their error, which was me. This is not when they're dead. This is when they're still alive. This he's talking about what God would do to homosexuals right here, right now on this planet and, and from time immortal. Now, I know this is hard. I don't like teaching stuff like this. I'd rather just teach grace, but God wrote it down and I have to follow it. He said, Receiving themselves that recompense. Jude chapter 7, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. God said that this vile affection is so dangerous, it's so uh, important that people understand how I feel that I brought the eternal fire of hell up on the planet and roasted those people and turned them into ashes and burnt them so that throughout history we could look back and we could say that they are giving themselves over. They've stopped trying. They've stopped trying to be truth or walk in light or to be part of the nature of God, and they've given themselves over to something that's vile, and that I want them to know the end result of that. Friends, this is not just happening in Gibeah, and it's not just happening in Kapa'ah. The reason that this chapter is here, the reason that God writes things like this is because some of the young men in this tent right now are on that road. That doesn't mean they'll get there. It means they're walking the path. Young man, you think you can get up at night and get your iPad or your your little phone and sneak it down and start checking out pornography and it doesn't change you. It will change you. And eventually God will give you over to a vile affection that makes you think that what you're doing is wholesome and good. That makes you say, how dare you, you evil person, look at me and tell me that I'm wrong. God says, I gave you over to that mess because you changed the natural use into something which is against nature. Young ladies, old ladies, you think that that doesn't make a difference? The things that you do, you're walking the path that Gibeah walked before you. You're walking the path that Sodom and Gomorrah walked before Gibeah. You're walking a path that leads to destruction, eternal damnation. And God said, I want you to know that this will grow mushrooms in your lungs. I want you to know that this sin is dangerous and it will destroy you. Do you know why God wants you to know? Because he loves you. Everything God does is based in love. God doesn't hate the homosexual. God loves them. And wants to rescue them. We love them and want to rescue them. And the way that we go about that is saying homosexuality is a vile, evil thing from the devil. And you need to be free from it. That's how you love. That's how God loves. And we're called to follow him. God's opinion of homosexuality hasn't changed. From the beginning of time until his coming back. God's opinion of homosexuality is is. is harmonious throughout the scriptures people say well that's the old testament the levitical law where you're supposed to to murder or not murder but stone somebody to death for that that's right and we're not under the levitical law but god's opinion of homosexuality has not changed friends it's throughout the new testament god again and again warns that this vile thing will land you somewhere that i don't want you to go i want to redeem you from that not in that from that I want to save you, not in sins, from sins. I want you to be free from that. If God's opinion of homosexuality hasn't changed, the homosexual's opinion of God has changed. The homosexual has remade God in their image. They have said that God is a God of love, and he looks upon my vile affection with tenderness and with joy, seeing that my vile affection fulfills me. And God says, I already named that thing, and it's not love. That's God's words. Who informs your opinion? You see, we all have opinions. We all make judgments. We all point to something and say, this is this and this is that. And this probably this conversation makes you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. I have people that I know, friends even, that are homosexual, that are distant, but somebody that I know. And I love and I want them to be saved from that. I want them to be free from that. I'm not saying that I hate them. I'm saying that because I love them, I'll have a hard conversation. I'll have a difficult conversation, stand up for what God says and say you can be redeemed. You can be set free. you can walk in truth and righteousness, and God will create virtue in your life by removing you from that. Submit your life to him. And you say, but, but this is what I want. That's right. But what does God say? What, what is his opinion? What's the homosexual's opinion? And where does your opinion ride, with God or with man? Let God be true, and every man a liar. I hope you take this to heart. Our culture is not. Judges nineteen twenty three. And the man, the master of the house, went out unto them and said unto them, Nay, my brethren, nay, pray you, do not so wickedly, seeing that this man is come unto mine house, do not this folly. That is not the argument that I would have used. He comes out and he says, don't do this because he's under my hospitality and what you're doing is evil to him. But the society was comfortable with this sort of sin. The group of people here was comfortable with this and had walked away from the law of God so that this guy says, don't do this wicked thing to this man. And then he says, behold, here is my daughter, a maiden, and his concubine, them I will bring out now, and humble ye them, and do with them what seemeth good unto you, but in, unto this man do not so vile a thing. This, this guy says, I will bring out his concubine and my virgin daughter, and you take them and humble them. He knew that this wasn't just about gratification. This was about power over another human being. This was about demoralizing and, and objectifying and destroying another person. And he said, destroy my virgin daughter, my maiden, and this guy's concubine, but don't do it to that guy. I want a time machine a flamethrower i I kid you not my knuckles burn i this affects me i 've lost sleep over this passage. I cannot believe this man did that i can 't believe lot did that and and offered this thing up verse twenty five but the men would not hearken to him, so the man took his concubine and brought her forth unto them, and they knew her and abused her all the night until the morning and when the day had begun to spring, they let her go um I hate this story. I like heroes. I like people that overcome evil with good. I don't watch Clint Eastwood movies. I watch John Wayne movies, where there's a good guy and a bad guy, and the bad guy loses. I don't like it when everybody's bad. I hate everybody in this story. I they except for the maiden, right? I like the maiden, but but the concubine, the the husband, the I just it is it's a vile thing, man. It's awful. And so he gives this concubine, this man, who should protect her. He went and spoke to her heart. He went in and, and like brought her back, and, and he should die in front of that door to protect her. And yet he brings her out, and he says, here, guys, have my concubine. It's disgusting. Judges 1926, and then came the woman in the dawning of the day and fell down at the door of the man's house where her Lord was till it was light. So these men, these men of the city, sons of Belial, abuse this woman all night long. They humiliate her and and rape her all night long. And then when the morning comes, she crawls home and she gets as far as the front porch and she falls down with her hands on the front porch and she dies there. Judges 19.27. And her Lord rose up in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way and behold the woman his concubine was fallen down at the door of the house and her hands were upon the threshold and he said unto her up and let us be going but none answered then the man took her upon an ass and the man rose up and got him to his place so this piece of work comes out of the house his concubine is now dead having been abused to death, and he says, get up. That's the words he has for her. What a vile creature. And then when she was, couldn't get up, she was, she was dead, he picked her up and he tied her to his donkey, and he went back to his house, to his place. Judges 1929, and when he was come unto his house, he took a knife and he laid hold of his concubine and divided her together with her bones into 12 pieces and sent her unto all the coast of Israel. That is unspeakably awful. That is horrible. I I don't like reading this. I don't like thinking about it. I don't like experiencing it 3,000 years later. Samuel didn't either. But this guy comes and he sends a piece of his concubine to each of the 12 tribes of Israel across the coast. Here he is in Ephraim. And when it was so that All that saw it said there was no such deed done nor seen from the day that the children of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt unto this day. Consider it. Take advice and speak your minds. uh, Samuel says that when everybody saw what was done, when everybody heard this story, they were grieved. They felt like I feel right now. If I were there and had a sword, I would grab it and run to Benjamin. I I wouldn't walk. I wouldn't sleep if I could help it. I would run to Benjamin, and I'd take vengeance. God takes vengeance. God's about to take vengeance on this tribe, and they will be wiped out nearly to the man. They're going to be wiped out. And, and God doesn't just judge this tribe. He's going to judge all the tribes at the same time because this sort of thing doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, people don't get to be 18, 19 years old and think, you know what, I'm going to go be this vile, disgusting creature and go do something that's just so horrible. Instead, it happens in increments. It happens from a movie they watch, a book they read, a conversation that they have. Uh, their parents going, that's just a different way of life. They, they love each other. It's just your uncle's, you know, it's okay, just laugh. That's how it happens, a little bit at a time. And until it's normalized, until it's in the church, until you have pastors stand up here and talk about their husbands. And the church becomes filled with vile affection. And God departs and leaves them to their reprobate minds. And, and and until you have clubs that name the name of God but have made God in their own image. And then you get this town that says this is the right way. You know what he said to them? Do whatsoever seemeth right unto thee. That's what he said. And you know what they did? They raped a woman to death. That's what they thought was right. That's what they believed was a wholesome activity. They had the right. They were strangers. What right do they have in our town? Friends, that sort of culture doesn't happen overnight. It happens with a continual cascade failure where you your family and then your family's family and then your your extended and your, your country continues to say that that's okay. We'll make permission for that. It starts with opening your computer and looking at some pornography. It starts from moving in with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. It starts from little sins that you say, this sin is okay, it's not too far. I can do this sin, and, and it won't catch up. And in the society, it catch up. Samuel says, take advice, speak your minds. So why do we read it? That's how I started this. Why do we read this? I hate this story. I, I kept having to stop and study other stuff. I kept having to go out and mow grass and just, like, do stuff this week. I, I hate this story. 2 Timothy 3.13, it says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Friends, that's right now. He, Paul said to Timothy that in 2022, evil men and deceivers are going to wax worse and worse. Do you know how evil men propagate evil? For good men to do nothing. To say nothing, to sit down and be quiet, and to affirm their evil. No, your evil's good. Do you know what difference between good and evil is? What God says is good, and what God says is evil. That's the difference, not what we say. And it's not just that they're going to be evil men. They're going to be seducing, and deceiving, and being deceived. There are. Th- this is horrible. There are people out there with good, genuine hearts. A lot of people, good, genuine, loving people that just want to love their neighbors and do the right thing, that embrace the thing that God calls vile affection. If you go down here right now and, and go to some of these stores, and you walk in, you're gonna find a t-shirt stand. I saw it this week. A little a little place that you can buy your, your children gay pride shirts. And your children can walk around. I'm so proud that I can wear this shirt and support homosexuality a vile affection that will take our society down the toilet until men will abuse somebody to death and feel right about doing it. Homosexuality is not the problem, it's the symptom. The problem is a lack of faith in God. It's a lack of obedience to God. It's a lack of understanding the law of God. And it's a lack of men having the courage to stand up and tell the truth about what God says. Friends, ultimately, this is the church's fault. God gave us the most powerful tool that has been from creation until the end of time. He said, you think raising people from the dead is amazing? Greater things will you do. You will turn lives around. People that are lost to homosexuality will become God-fearing, God-loving, virtuous members of the church. Friends, it happens because God is, is powerful. And because Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. That salvation saves you from sin and to life everlasting, God can do that, but we don't expect him to. And we're trying to pretend like he doesn't need to, like it's not important. They're deceiving. These poor kids are deceived, and they're deceiving the next generation. It's a cascade failure. It's a big snowball of evil that's rolling down this glorious nation that we once had, and it's going to destroy all of us. That's awfully dark. 2 Timothy 3.14, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Paul said to Timothy, don't get bent out of shape because there's deceivers and there's people that are being deceived. He said, I want you to know something. Continue in what you've learned. What's he talking about? Because the epistles aren't all written yet. He's talking about the book of Judges. He's talking about the book of Samuel. He's talking about the book of Joshua. He says, you keep doing what you learned to be true, and if you'll keep doing that thing that you learned, you will escape. Friends, you know what your kids need you to do? Tell them the truth. Tell them that those things will grow mushrooms in their lungs. And then they will look at that and say, I will never do that. I will step away from that. You know, my kids do not think cigarettes are cool. You know why? Because when they were three years old, they learned about mushrooms. Church... It's time for us to learn about what God thinks about sexuality, what He thinks about fornication and and homosexuality and all of these things, and we need to be serious about about following God in them. Continuing on, 2 Timothy 3.15, "...and that from a child thou hast known the holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God." and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This week I opened Judges chapter 19 I said Lord no and he put this verse right in front of my forehead. Boom! The word of God is good. Don't tell me it's not. And it's profitable. Don't tell me it's not. And I said yes Lord I'm sorry. It was only for a second. But I didn't want to teach it. didn't want to go there. Teach it to your kids. From a child thou hast known. Friends, that's been my testimony. From a very little kid. I've known the right and the wrong. I've known what would make me wise unto the salvation of Jesus Christ. And I have embraced God and so have my children. Be serious. Be serious about teaching your kids the truth. And don't worry what the world says. Don't let them inform your opinion of right and wrong. Let God do it. Church, I'm sorry this is heavy. I'm sorry that it is disgusting and difficult and painful to talk about. But you know what? God wrote it down because he didn't want us to end up that way. He didn't want us there because he loves us. And because I love you, I'm going to tell you the truth and preach the word of God as it's written. Let's pray. Father, your grace is sufficient. Oh, Lord, when we read this, I feel so so sick inside, so like I've, I've brushed against evil and it's left a mark. But, Lord... Your grace is sufficient to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, have your own way in our lives. Renew our minds. Help us to walk uprightly. Help us to be serious and to love our neighbors and to tell them the truth. Help us to be careful, to be instant in season and out. Help us to be light and salt and not to lose our savor. Father, help us to be different, to be a peculiar people, to be called out, to be holy and without blemish, to be like you, Father, closer and closer into the image of Jesus. Lord, we need you. We need you every hour. We need you right now. We need you in our lives. We need you to direct us. Father, we love you. We're so thankful that, that for every chapter like this, Father, that there's books of joy and peace, books of the good that's coming. But Lord, let us not forget the evil that will overtake us If we're lax, if we are not the watchmen that stand on the wall, help us to be good watchmen, Father. Help us to love you better and better. In Jesus' name, amen.